Our scripture lesson today comes from the gospel according to John chapter 13, and the heart of the text comes at the end, but the heart of the text is richer if we hear what's happening just before Jesus says these amazing words. So hear these words from John 13. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judah, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, you do not know what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, one who has bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean, and you were clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. After he had washed their feet, had put on his robe, and had returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. Very truly I tell you, Servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Little children. I am with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. May God bless this reading to our understanding. Love in the Ruins is the title of a science fiction novel by Walker Percy, written in 1971. Percy sets the novel in the future, at a time in American communal life when life appears to be fragmenting between the left and the right, and society seems to be coming apart at the seams. Percy describes the society in which Americans have turned against one another along religious, racial, 
and political lines. Now, unless you love dystopian science fiction novels, I am not suggesting that you run out and buy Walker Percy's novel, but I have always loved the title, Love in the Ruins. I read this novel first when I was in college and again in graduate school, and what stuck with me even more than the narrative was this image, Love in the Ruins. In today's scripture lesson, from the Gospel according to John, the people are trying to figure out how to love when life is lived among the ruins. Now, the Gospel of John begins like the other Gospels do, telling us about the life of Jesus, the miracles, the teachings, the healings, all that Jesus preached and said. And the Gospel of John ends like the other Gospels end, telling us about the passion of Jesus, about his journey to the cross and his glorious resurrection. But in the middle of John, there's this section called the farewell speech. It's five chapters long where Jesus gives this extended goodbye to his disciples. Here he's talking with his closest friends about the deep angst and the worry he knows that they are experiencing as the impending crisis of his departure looms. Will their faith in God crumble when life as they know it crumbles? Now also, the people who read the Gospel of John first were living at a time when they had to figure out how to love in the ruins. The Gospel of John was written years after the temple fell in Jerusalem in 70 AD, and so there were literal ruins all around. Stone crumbled in the streets, sitting on the ground where they had previously worshiped God. The holy temple in Jerusalem has been crushed, and the political tensions are running high as the Roman Empire persecutes the early Christian community. The members of the early Christian community wondered how it is that they might figure out how to love in the midst of a world that was pluralistic, multicultural, and religiously fragmented. To all of this, Jesus says, Little children, I am with you only a little longer. Where I am going, you cannot come. And so I give you a new commandment. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. Now, this is more than a simple reminder to be loving. This is Jesus saying to them that once he has departed from this earth, that they can still experience his nearness if they give and receive love to one another. Life won't be ruined if the love that was alive in his flesh comes alive in the flesh of the community. As one scholar puts it, mutual love is the only key to the door of being united with Jesus. Well, it sounds good on paper, but how can this really play out? How can we love the uncle who makes racially insensitive remarks at the dinner table? How can we love the sister who reads a different science than the one we read? How can we love the politician who doesn't seem to care about our veterans or protect our borders? How can we love the religious leader who tramples on basic human rights in the name of God? In a world where we do not even agree on the facts, 
how might we love one another? The late musical genius Leonard Cohen wrote, the blizzard of the world has crossed the threshold and it has overturned the order of the soul. Sometimes it feels it, like it is impossible to love and still maintain our own soul, our own integrity. Theologian Howard Thurman reminds us that to love is not to condone a person's beliefs or way of life. To love simply means to recognize some respect and reverence for another person. The love that Jesus describes here is not that kind of warm, fuzzy feeling. Rather, it is a decision to act kindly towards someone who might not even receive our kind act. Jesus knew what this felt like. When Jesus says, I give you a new commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also should one another, Jesus is facing the most horrific and difficult moment of his life. He is saying goodbye to his friends because he knows that his own crucifixion is near. And in this moment, Jesus humbly kneels at the feet of his disciples and washes their dirty feet. Now, foot washing may have been a common form of hospitality in the ancient world, but servants do the foot washing, not messiahs. And here we find Jesus kneeling down to dip a wet wash rag into a bowl and scrub the mud off of their toenails. And Jesus not only washes the feet of the faithful disciples, he also washes the feet of Judas, who he has just announced is about to betray him. He washes the feet of Peter, who he has just announced is about to deny him. This is radical love. This is the kind of love that holds up when life appears to be ruined. Can it be that Jesus is asking us to love those who betray us? To love those who deny us, who love those who do not see eye to eye with us? Is that kind of love really possible. In his book, Portraits of Peace, Searching for Divided America, a journalist and photographer named John Noltner tells about how he traveled from coast to coast in this country, interviewing and photographing people from all different walks of life who were engaged in some form of seeking peace. One of the men that he met along the way was Tyrone. When Tyrone was 23 years old, he was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. But Tyrone maintained his innocence. He only admitted to being a couple of blocks away when the crime occurred and helping his buddies escape from the crime scene, which was supposed to be a simple robbery but went bad. And when he arrived in prison, Tyrone was sent through a battery of tests, and he was told that he was at a second grade reading level, but he had a higher than average IQ. And so inside the walls of prison, Tyrone finished not only his high school degree, but his college degree. And just after he received his life sentence, he went back to his cell 
and he had this aha moment. It was a moment that he said hit him like a ton of bricks. He could hear still the sounds of his family members wailing in the courtroom, and he said to himself in the solitude of his own cell, wow, all this time I've been focused on me. And it was all that bitterness and anger and resentfulness that I was carrying around, and that's what was weighing me down. And at that moment, this ton of bricks hit him, and he decided he would take responsibility for his own life. He would try to do what he could in his power to make it up to his family and to the victim's family. He became a model prisoner, and 35 years later, Tyrone's sentence was commuted by the governor of Pennsylvania. He became a free man. And now today, Tyrone has an office on the campus of Temple University where he is helping other previously incarcerated individuals build a new life based on education. After talking with him for several hours, the photographer and journalist found himself deeply moved, not only by Tyrone's tragic story, but also by Tyrone's deep commitment to justice and to Tyrone's character and strength in trying to help other people put their lives back together. And so after this long, long visit, the photographer looked at Tyrone and he said, you're, you're sitting here in the office. You, you look like your reformed self. You're wearing a coat and tie. You look so sharp. And I'm going to take a risk. Say no if you don't want to. But rather than taking your photograph here in this boring office, would you consider going to the scene of the crime and standing in front of the house where the murder took place and letting me take your picture there looking so sharp in your suit with that house behind you. Tyrone grew silent. He sat there for a long time, and then he looked back at the journalist. That would mean a lot to me, and they didn't. And it makes me wonder what would happen if you and I sat down and talked for several hours with people whom we disagree with vehemently, with people whom we have very little in common with in terms of a life history, if we sat down across the table from someone whose journey was so different from our own, might we learn that the stereotypes which we have developed in our own minds are not actually true? Might we understand what is behind that person's harsh words, harsh actions, religious and political view, and anger? What if we took the risk to see another human being as a person to be loved and respected and revered as another person like us, created by the living God. In that novel, Love in the Ruins, the main character creates a machine. I, I kind of want one of these machines. It's called a lapsometer. The lapsometer, he says, it's a stethoscope for the soul. Though it is a fictitious book, 
this lapsometer, this stethoscope for the soul, it reminds me that all of us need to peer inside of our own souls and ask, how do we contribute to the polarization of our society? How might we have an opportunity to contribute to the unity in the human race? At one point in the novel, the author says that the problem is not between the left and the right. What troubles our nation is not that some are on the left and some are on the right. The problem is that things have stopped working and no one wants to be the repairman. I think that's what Jesus is asking us, calling us, pleading with us in his final words. Be the repairman. Love one another as I have loved you. In the final pages of the novel, the main character goes to see his priest, and the priest listens to him talk for a long time, and then he says, try showing a bit of ordinary kindness, particularly to your own family. I wish, my friends, that I could say with some certainty what would solve the problem of polarization in our time. I wish I could even offer some certainty that it will eventually turn around. But that is not what the gospel offers us. What Jesus shows us is how to love in the ruins, how to offer ordinary kindness, how to make a difference where we are right now within our own families, within our own circle of friends, within our own spheres of influence. How do we treat those around us? Do we offer one another a sense of humility, any sense that we ourselves may not look perfect under the stethoscope of the soul? That we ourselves might have something to do to learn and grow in order to love in the way that Jesus loved. In the movie Jojo Rabbit, there's this main character who is a 10-year-old little boy named Jojo. He's growing up during World War II in Europe, in Germany. He is part of Hitler's Nazi youth movement. He is strict. He is rigid. He does everything he hears in the voice of the Nazi youth movement. One day, the 10-year-old Jojo comes home and discovers by accident that hiding in the attic is a Jewish girl who his mother has hidden up there. Her name is Elsa, and he immediately wants to destroy her. But he realizes this would bring danger both to him and to his mother. And so she remains hidden in the attic. He is repulsed by her. But over time, Jojo and Elsa begin to form a bond friendship. Life all about Jojo and Elsa begins to crumble. They lose loved ones. They lose family members. They lose friends. They are not certain they will even survive. They don't know if they will have enough food. And slowly, Jojo begins to question everything. He begins to reframe everything. He begins to look at those whom he admired and wondered if they knew what they were talking about. He begins to soften to fall in love with Elsa. When the, not, when the movie ends, 
Everything is in rubbles. For blocks, you see buildings falling over. You see soldiers running. You see tanks that are abandoned. And then you see the house where Jojo and Elsa have been hiding. And they come down the stairs, and they step out the door, and they go out into all that rubble. And they begin to dance, and they begin to sing, and they begin to laugh. Because in the ruins, love lives on.